coaches, welcome to the United Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Smith. We are proudly sponsored by my good friends at Dr. Dish. Check out Dr. Dish at Dr. Dish B-Ball on all social media. They do phenomenal things there. Mention this podcast and save $300 on the best shooting machine in the game. Also, right around the corner is the Hoosier Gym Clinic. Jeff Walls, Tyler Coston, Lenny Acuff, Kevin Carroll, Jacob Amerman. The list goes on. Hernando Planels, uh, Kristen Woodrick. We have... 10 speakers, I believe, and a day-and-a-half clinic. It's really, really done well. Um, team on the floor, lunch provided Saturday. Go to the show notes and register for the clinic. It is filling up fast. This is a great day of learning uh, from some of the best of the game in person. Also, check out United Basketball Plus. We have some unreal content coming out later this year. Uh, you get a year of United Basketball Plus, $59 a month, which is like a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Probably less than that, actually. Um, I'm a Chick-fil-A guy, so maybe it's like, you know, a number one at Chick-fil-A. Um, but seriously, check out United Basketball Plus. We have great content on there. But subscribers save 50% on the coaches' clinic. So it essentially pays for itself. You save 50%, uh, and then this costs $59. It's a great um, asset for coaches to have. I'm excited to have Brian Adams with the 76ers on the podcast as we talk developing your core defensive principles. This was a really fun podcast with a professional coach with the Philadelphia 76ers. I hope you enjoy. Coaches, I want to welcome Brian Adams, an assistant coach with the Philadelphia 76ers. We're going to be talking about developing your defensive system on tonight's podcast. Coach, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it, man. It's great to be here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to really chatting it up with you and getting into the uh, defensive uh, nuts and bolts of everything. Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing every every coach, uh, we're always trying to figure out, I don't care if you're high school level, JUCO level, or NBA level, how can we be a better defensive team? And uh, before we get rolling with the podcast, a, a mutual friend of ours, Phil Beckner, suggested you to the podcast. I know he's with the 76ers now. Uh, just talk a little bit about your background, how you got to be an NBA assistant coach. Was that your dream all along? Because um, a lot of coaches that I I know that coach NBA, it was never really their dream to get there. It just kind of happened, and they're very blessed to be there. So tell a little bit of your story, if you don't mind. No, 100%. Uh, I had a great high school coach uh, when I played in at Millbrook School in, in upstate New York. His name is Tim McEnroe, and I just, I just loved – he kind of showed me – how coaching was so beneficial from both just an on the court and off the court standpoint. So pretty early on, I was pretty attracted to potentially being a coach. And at what level though, obviously I think it's easy to dream NBA. It's uh, it's easy to think of the big time college basketball because they're in our face, but I also, I, I had aspirations to potentially coach at the prep level, all that, all those type of things. And then uh, out of college, I was able to get a basketball operations internship with the Knicks and from there, I thought I was maybe going to head towards the front office side. The, at the time, there, there hadn't been a lot of buzz around the video room. And when I got to the Knicks, I kind of felt like my avenue more was, was pulling me towards coaching. Uh, so I talked to our video guys because I could tell that they had a similar background to myself and how did they get involved. And one of them had started as an intern with the Celtics, so he was able to put me in touch with Jamie Young, who ironically works with me now here at the Sixers. Uh, and Jamie hired me as his video intern for a season after an interview process. So I did that for a year, got hired full-time by the Celtics, and I did a total of five years at the Celtics. From the Celtics, I was still pretty young and really hankering to coach, and I didn't think I was going to have a chance to coach in kind of that environment with kind of the coaches we already had in my experience. So I was at, I was fortunate to get the third assistant spot at Harvard for uh, Tommy Amaker. Mm -hmm. So that was very cool. And I did two years there at Harvard. It was an awesome experience. And I really kind of got my coaching voice and learned how to apply some of the stuff I'd had from video to actually coaching on the floor from, from Harvard. I ended up hooking on with Jeff Bauer for the one year he did at uh, Marist and after that year, Stan Van Gundy ended up hiring him as his GM for Detroit. And I was kind of looking for a job when Doc needed a video coordinator in L.A. And I said, I'd be willing to go back and do video, even though I wanted to coach. And would he mind kind of letting me run with a little bit of a coaching associate role as well, where I kind of fed him 
offensive and defensive ideas on the side of doing the day-to-day video. From there, I was a, I was video coordinator slash coaching associate for a few years, got promoted to just coaching associate, and then was fortunate enough to be able to get the uh, Agua Caliente, which is the Clippers minor league team's head job. And uh, wow. did two years of that. And then Doc ended up going to Philly and asked me if I'd had interest in going as an assistant coach. And it was the right opportunity. So that's kind of brought me to where I am now. You know, I always enjoy hearing how coaches get into it. I don't care if you're high school or what you're doing. Uh, like a guy on the podcast I had today that released Demetrius Ware. He had a really cool story how, how he got in. And really, everyone thinks it's about knowing the right people. And I'm not saying that doesn't matter at all. But a lot of it is just you just say yes. Like you said yes to a video position when you really didn't want to backtrack, but you knew that was what you needed to do. And now you're, you're with the Sixers. And how, so how many years have you been in the league counting the, you know, the, I guess the G, the Agua Caliente. I, I'm not great at Spanish. I mean, is that hot water? Is that what that stands for? Uh, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I think it is hot water. But it sounds it better. Crazy. It sounds so much better in Spanish. <laughs> they recently, so when I was there, the Agua Caliente and they're affiliated with um, a casino and a native American group in the area. And now they just turned to the Ontario Clippers, Ontario, California. So Obviously, uh, it's easier to say now, but uh, no, I think let's see: five years in Boston, six years in LA, okay. and two years in wow. and two years in Philly. So uh, we're at thirteen years. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. Yeah, you'll blink and it'll be twenty. That's not counting. That's not counting three years in college. Right? Yeah. So you're you're fifteen years, sixteen years in uh, high level with Amaker and Harvard and, and so on. Well, let's let's dive in uh, to the topic at hand, um, building your defensive system. And you know, to me, it doesn't matter if the guys running zone, matchup zone, man to man, pack line. There's a lot of defensive principles that we still use, right? So, let's talk about some specific um, defensive areas. And one thing I've really been looking at this off season is kind of individual defense. And this could be talked about as on the ball, or off the ball, correctly. But ha- talk about individual defense and what you like to see there, maybe how you guys teach it or some terminology that you think is really, really helpful. Yeah, no. Uh, so at, at the end of the day, the whole, you know, it's, it's that old cliche saying, but guard your yard. So defending the ball is obviously one of the most important things in your defense, because if you can keep it in front, you're good. I think that uh, at what you really want to do is define kind of how you want to, how you want to guard the ball, whether you want to guard it and force it to, kind of a side. So there's a couple different philosophies, whether you're guarding the ball square and that's, that's kind of what we believe in, whether you're kind of sending the ball say to the baseline from every sideline. So you're just trying to jump on the side and kind of funnel it there. I know uh, if you watch Texas tech play, they, they're kind of really jumping on a side and funneling the ball to areas. Um, or if you want to force it middle, because maybe that's where you want your help to be and you're jumping on the side to force the ball middle all the time. And then the other thing would be simply selling out to a strong hand, weak hand. And obviously at the high school level, you're not necessarily scouting that. But I know of some colleges who like to just force everything left because mm-hmm. they figure that 90% of people are going to be right hand dribblers. So by forcing the ball to the left, uh, you're going there. So first of all, defining kind of how you're going to be on the ball. So we're square, um, your stance down low, uh, your head to the chest ready to move your feet. You don't want to be too wide because why you won't be as athletic and uh, really, you know, using, using your feet to kind of slide, push off and then really bump with your chest to reroute the ball if you can and try to basically not allow any straight line drives. Mm-hmm. And what we call is flat drives where they're basically non-threatening drives. Uh, but from there, you also got to talk about how you're going to close out to the ball. And I know uh, a lot of people like to say that coming from your help, you're running and you're chopping your steps three quarter of the way there. But I think some of that stuff is more coach speak. So we're kind of big into just closing out. And as much as we want to be square on the ball, we do like to close out with a little bit of a no middle stance initially, because the thought is we don't want to give up middle. That's our, our defensive philosophy is kind of taking away the rim, taking away the paint. But as you close out, you're no middle adjusting to a square on the catch. You're closing out to touch in their airspace, um, anyone in outside the three, obviously, the goal is to not allow them to raise up and shoot a three. 
if they do catch it inside the three, we're automatically going to try to close out short because we do want to force contested twos and we're not going to give any dare shots, but at the same time, we would hate to kind of close out too hard and give an easy layup or a dunk for a guy that's catching inside the three-point line. So that'd be kind of the basis of what we're going to do. Uh, when you do slide your feet, the other thing coming up to me is not really doing that crossover step, using kind of your inside foot to power and slide. And then from there, if you feel like you're being beat, try to chest up and guard them with the lower half of your body. So you do that through closeout drills, through uh, your shell drills and all that stuff. And then the biggest thing we've kind of adjusted to is with our player development, we're trying to work in a lot of uh, a lot of aggressive closeouts and one-on-one. And then when we get into help defense later, kind of closing out a little more aggressively without the fear of being blown by because the goal is that you can trust your help behind. And then a lot of offensive players, the, the notion is if I close out too hard, they'll just blow right by me. But the truth is if you close out aggressively, there's a chance the offense is stung a little by your closeout, a little put on their heels. And so then you're the aggressor and not them. Yeah. If you close out, I guess, too softly or, or weak, then you're just going to not, they're going to have a, a shot that's not um, distracted. You know, they can, they can just pull up and shoot because you're going to be slow or, yeah, the chop feet thing, I think it's kind of outdated just because yeah. if you chop your feet, I mean, I'm giving you a, fr- a free jumper, especially in, in, in the league, right? I mean, the best, most skilled players in the world. Do you see, um, teams that push players weak hand. Do you see a lot of that? Or we see, we yeah, just uh, assume, sorry to interrupt you, but we just assume as high school coaches, like everyone in the NBA or G can go essentially left as good as right or, or vice versa. But I guess you're also thinking about that finishing to the left versus finishing to the right, et cetera. But are there some teams that do that? Yeah, no, for sure. And so one thing you mentioned, kind of closing out to the three real quick before I go to the tendencies is uh, the other thing is knowing your personnel as far as even if you are at the high school level, I think you can zero in on a couple hot shooters, a couple more drivers. And maybe in the high school level, you are closing out short to a majority of the roster if you don't think they're a good jump shooting team. So that that's just another thing, because. As coaches, I think we want to do everything right. But at the same time, if closing out short versus a team of a bunch of guys that really can't shoot is the best way to win, I think that's pretty effective. Right. But but to go back to your question, um, yeah, in the NBA, I'd say a majority of people are square on the ball. And the reason being is that if you get up just the slightest bit on a side, we used to be more no middle, but just even that kind of puts in their head that you get up on the side and you give potentially a a driving lane by being a little more no middle. We, we say square to shade, no middle. With that said though, we'd rather you be square than say getting up. If you're on the right sideline, getting up on that left hip and giving them, giving them, uh, you know, the left hand drive straight line, left hand drive there. Um, you've seen the Raptors are very uh, aggressive in forcing specific players to their weekend all over the court. Mm-hmm. For us and a lot of teams, that directional comes in play on, you know, the majority of NBA is turned into isolation basketball and there's a lot of switching and whatnot. So that's where you really zero in. Boom, there's a switch. You have a big on Jason Tatum. You know, you play in the tendencies of does he like to go left or right? And some guys like Tatum can go both ways. But when he goes left, he likes to pull up a little more. So maybe you're willing to live with that and giving him rim attempts. It's kind of kind of what you want to live with. I do, I do think the Warriors were forcing him left a ton. They're forcing a lot of the Celtics to the left. So you're starting to see more and more of it. The Raptors are doing it kind of at a holistic level. I think everybody else is doing it more on an isolation and game planning level. No, that that's a great point. I mean, I know there's a, a kind of a cultural shift and a lot of coaches are are pushing left no matter what at, with some high school even college teams even if they even if they're left-handed player so we're pushing yeah. everyone left and they've got two left-handed guys or girls we just can't think in the moment to push that player right so everything's you know keep it simple yeah yeah um but that is kind of a and i would say at the high school level guys may be able to get downhill with their left hand but it's about the finishing right yeah. as opposed to them going strong hand no doubt no doubt yeah and then you know just thinking on just some finishing points on closing out I think one of the biggest things too is when you are closing out 
I think it's so simple. We work on it every day with our guys and they're super athletes, but so many times, first of all, you're not down in a help stance. So you should be down in a help stance, but if you are in a good help stance so quickly after that first step, you just stand straight up and that kind of loses your momentum. And then you're basically closing out. You got to get back down. So staying low and compact. And the other thing was we, we talked about um, the chopping your steps being a little outdated. I do think closing out two hands up, uh, is kind of kind of take you out of a good stance. So mm-hmm. we like to do one hand. A lot of some people say stick hand, but we're closing out with our inside hand and touch. Yep, that's good. That's a, some terminology I've heard from, from some other coaches. What about um, ball screens, pick and roll action? I know that's very popular in the NBA and, and, and pro levels. High school, depending on the level, you know, I see it quite a bit. But then also some college. So how do you? Um, guard the pick and roll or even the pick and pop some other actions that may come out of the ball screen. Yeah, no. So obviously in the NBA for the longest time until the Warriors kind of had their latest run, the most dominant action for almost everybody was the pick and roll. And it's still probably the highest volume action for every team. So guarding the pick and roll, you can make the case it's 70 to 80% of your defense in the half court at times. So basically you have, you look at it kind of one through five and a lot of times you're one through four, especially in new age basketball. And and as it's become more and more positionless, they're more perimeters and your five is usually a traditional big. So basically you usually have your covers for your five. And what that means is you're in a drop or an ice. We like to say, meaning Mm -hmm. when the ball screens coming in a high pick and roll area, we're in a drop. And when it's on the side, we're in an ice and we're forcing it to the sideline and in both you know, we want the big up initially, but getting back and trying to not let the roll get behind him, even though we do want him up initially to kind of show a presence. But then it's all about his retreat and staying in line with the ball. Um, we want the big man on the ball to be square until he hears the call. And some people like to call strong, which means force the offensive player to his right hand. Weak, which means force the offensive player to his left hand. So that's been a verbal use. We actually just keep it really simple. Drop left, meaning the left that the big is on is the direction he's sending it. So I'm a guard. I hear I just jump from a square stance into the ball, no rejects from the screen, and send it to his left on a drop. And then drop right is simply, boom, going from a square stance, sending him to his right hand. Excuse me, sending him to your right, not his right hand. So it's our directionals. And then on the sideline, you're square. And the big has to get into position before he calls ice because essentially you're sending the ball to the baseline on an ice. So if the big's not in posi- uh, posi- uh, position, then it's a straight line drive to the rim most likely. So that's kind of how we're handling it with the uh, the fives. And with that, then you got to pair kind of your help with your coverage. So when we're in a drop, we still want to be in initially and show a ton of help but then you're kind of reading that role and you have what's called a low man, your lowest line of defense. It's on the weak side, usually depending on the, the alignment. And he's kind of, he's kind of reading the role. And if it's getting behind the big, then he's activated. And then the next man is kind of ready to protect him on the pass. And it's called an X rotation. It's hard to kind of totally talk through via a podcast, but at the same time, it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. So some people though would literally say we're handing the pick and roll two on two and we're dropping our big back, and we're putting an onus on the guards to get them inside a three in pursuit to square the ball up, and we're not using our help. Uh, but with with some teams and our like our base defense, we're trying to basically read that role and be in initially, and if the big needs help, we should be there, and everything starts being in to get out. So initially you're there, and you're just kind of reading it from there and reacting out if you can. Um with our smalls or our perimeters, our one through fours, we're, we're basically a switch team. And we're, we're switching the ball, and we, our verbal for that is square. And the re- reason for that is that on any – we tell our guys that when you hear square being called, stay square on the ball but know that there's a screen coming because we only switch on contact. So if you were to call a direction and you jump to a side of the ball – and then they slip out, mm-hmm. you're giving a straight line drive. And you see offenses take advantage of that all the time. So square, your mindset should be, I'm staying square on the ball, but I know a screen's coming. You feel that contact, screener's man switches up, man on the ball switches under. Uh, so that's kind of the basics for that. 
The last thing I'll add before there's a, there's a million things we could talk about, but the other two ones would be a show coverage, which is essentially a hedge. And that, that would be to reroute the ball. That would be if you don't want to get in matchup issues, if your best defenders guarding their best offensive player, maybe everybody's showing for the one through four to keep them on that. And then the other thing would be blitzing with our fives and, and bringing a full double team and, totally blitzing. And that's where you're keeping your help in the whole time. The role is going to get behind because you're super aggressive on the ball and then you're reacting out and rotating from there. So what is talk about the, the on ball defenders he's being screened, just walk through exactly what he's doing physically. Is, is there specific footwork or using your forearm or what are some things to make sure that he's in the right position um, as this happens, I know you covered a little bit, but yeah, no problem. Yeah. So when you let's, let's start with a, say a drop, we'll start with our drop. So you're into the ball. It's a high pick and roll. Your thought is if I don't hear anything, there's no screen coming. And that's where, you know, your defense kind of is, is, is huge with your verbal communication and talk's got to be Early, loud, continuous, it's going to build trust. So that man on the ball, your big's got to talk. He's got to yell the direction. When you hear that direction and you're guarding the ball, you go from a square stance to sending the ball to the direction you're hearing because then you want to force the ball handler to use the screen. No rejects whatsoever. But when you do do that from a technique standpoint, it's not an exaggerated jump to the hip movement because just like we were talking about on one-on-one defense, the more you kind of jump to the side of a guy, the more you're just potentially giving a straight line drive. And in a pick and roll, that could be a guard attacking a big because you've just gotten to his hip. So you're going to square to send it there, but you're just, you're kind of just jumping to the body. You know, you mentioned the forearm. So your kind of inside hand should kind of be right next to his body. And as that screen comes, we like to talk about dipping your shoulder so that you can get around the screen pretty easy and lower your shoulder and pursue to square the ball back up. Um, from there though, you're supposed to pursue until you have the ball squared up, or if it gets really deep, we call it a veer, meaning the big will take the ball and your job is to crack back into the big's legs. Any mid-range jump shot or anything like that is a rear view contest. Okay. No, I, I like that terminology. What about, um, they've got a, you know, a stretch, a big and the pick and pop, which has become more more prevalent um, over the last several years. And let me give you three reasons why you should get a Dr. Dish. First of all, it works. Statistics show that are tracked by Dr. Dish that users that put up over 10,000 reps per month can show up to a 10% increase in their makes. So if players will be committed to it, they will see increase in growth. Secondly, over 200 drills and workouts come with the Dr. Dish, and these are done by the top trainers and coaches in the game. So when you hear me say it's like getting another assistant coach, it's like getting multiple assistant coaches. And lastly, it is affordable. Coaches, I run a program. I know every penny matters. Dr. Dish, you pay 50% up front, and you have the next year to pay the other 50% with no interest. So reach out to Dr. Dish, mention this United Basketball podcast, and get $300 off. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, no, so basically there's two main coverages for that. You could just switch. You could switch one through five. But sometimes I think we get caught up in, okay, we're just going to switch because they're popping. Well, how is your big going to handle the guards on the other team? So if, if it's a case where you're not worried about it, then the switch is the coverage. You're just going to call square. The big's going to switch up, take the guard. The small is going to take the popping big, who most likely is popping because he's, that's his strength, not posting. Mm-hmm. If he was to post, we would front the post in a switch, front and back protection. But the other way is to do what I talked about, an emergency veer at the rim. We would call it a veer for the pop. So you're into the ball. The call gets made. You jump to the side to send the, send the ball handler to the screen. As he pops, if the big gets strung out from his shooting big, he calls veer. He takes the ball. The guard peels back and takes the big. So if the dude is a lights out shooter, you could just say it's an automatic veer. So the guy comes off, turns the corner, 
veer automatically. But if it's a guy that you're willing to live with, maybe he's shooting 30% or below, but you know he can hit a three or two, you're kind of reading it, engaging it, and putting on the big to make the call when he feels like he's too far away from that guy. Are there any other, or what are, I know there are, what are some other key or main actions you see a lot of at the NBA level that you just, you know, something that pretty much every team will hit you with at some point in time that you're always, you know, one of your key defensive stops you're looking to be able to guard? Yeah, I think, I think just like pick and rolls, you're going to see a real high volume of dribble handoffs and, you're seeing more and more teams that are super athletic, just treating them more like screens mm-hmm. and switching them. With that said, there's always the dribble handoff keep and that can get you, but it seems like teams are kind of just trying to jump out and jump under to just prevent it no matter what. So you'll see a guy try to keep and actually they've almost switched early. So it's, it's, it's not a factor with that said though, we're a little more traditional. We're, we're a either blow up or gap the DHO. And so as soon as you see the DHO coming, you go from a help stance to try to get if, as close to that man as you can. Sometimes it's easy and you can just get right to his body because we want to be physical with our DHOs. Um, if you can't, you're just getting as close as you can and chasing him as he's going to receive the DHO. The big's pressuring the ball. And then as the DHO is about to happen, he's giving space for that man who's chasing to either blow up and he can get his inside arm out and try to blow up the DHO. Some players are better than others. Or one thing we've done more of is we just said, just gap it, just gap it, because a lot of guys aren't shooting behind DHOs. So by gapping it, you're getting through. It's basically like an under on a pick and roll. So you're getting through, and then most likely there's going to be a repick, and then you're in your pick and roll coverage. Okay. So I'd say, yeah, I'd say DHOs. And then the other thing would be probably a high volume of specific screening actions and those two that jump out are a wide pin down but really with all the five out offense uh, a high wide pin down has been huge so basically quick screen away try to get a shooter a shot and then out of that they're reading a bunch of stuff they're reading maybe the guy gapped so they're going to repick to a pick and roll maybe the guy went over so they're looking to hit or they're hitting the, the big flashes and they're playing out of it or you see a ton of now the guy coming off the wide pin flips it back to the point guard who threw the ball. And now the five is setting a screen for him. So the wide pin has kind of got a variety. The high wide pin has got a variety of stuff you can get out of it. And then kind of to add to that is the, we call it a stagger away. So the double screen away, there's a man in the corner. You've got your five as the first screener, excuse me, your five as the second screener, a perimeter as the, the first screener and somebody from the corner coming off a double stagger, and he could he could curl the first screen, he could curl the second screen, he can come off looking for shot. Same as a wide pin, you can re-pick for a pick and roll. You can flip it to that big. So just kind of staying with that. And defensively, what you really have to determine with your screening action stuff is it's a little easier to just say you're not switching with the five, but what are you doing with your perimeter screens? And we like to, we like to stay with our own because – at the end of the day, we like to keep our mm-hmm. matchups, and then you can get a little lazy with what we call point switching. And even if your points not point switching, slips and screening action are a little harder to guard because nobody has the ball. Uh, but you're seeing a ton of teams that are super athletic, the Phoenix Suns, mm-hmm. the Warriors have done it for years. Uh, Houston had a lot of success when uh, they had Harden and those guys. A ton of teams are switching off ball screens and, you know, physicality and it, you can, you can do anything really well. If you, if you're physical, if you know, you're doing it, if you communicate, but traditionally we like to not switch off ball screens. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for diving in such great detail on those. Just kind of the segue to a, a point you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the word trust a couple of times as you were talking, you, they kind of connected with communication, you know, with the NBA roster, even college rosters these days with the transfer portal, your lineup from year to year is, is a much different many times, and it's hard to hold, hold on to some chemistry. Um, so how do you go about building trust within the, def- within the defense, and is it really just based off communication? Yeah. No, so I think that 
your trust, the, fir the first level of trust is your communication. Uh, the second level of trust is the fact that every day you're finding ways to drill it. And I do think, I think when you're building your defense, you, the first question you asked me was individual defense. And, and I'd say the only thing that comes before that is probably your transition defense. And that's pretty universal. And you're deciding what you want to do, whether you want to crash the glass, whether you want to get back. But once you move to individual defense, obviously you're defending the ball one-on-one, -on -one, but then behind that becomes kind of your, your base shell level, how you define your help. And I think the more you can kind of have your team on a string and the better your team commits to being a great help defensive team and how you rotate and how you cover for one another, I think that's huge as far as trust. So I think it's both guys got to be ready to, to help each other, but the more you as a coach can implement help breakdowns in your practices, I think that's going to build trust because I think sometimes with defense, because offense is simple – the main thing on offense, people run plays. And so everybody gets into the kind of cool X's and O's of plays. But I do think there's an art to making sure you are in your gaps, making sure you're in to get out, knowing that when the ball goes middle from the high slot, you have a high nail. Knowing when the ball's slot driven, you have a low man. And when you have a low man, who's helping the low man? Help the helper. Mm -hmm. And the big thing, too, is that it, teaching your team that, you know, it's a multiple – effort game defensively. And so the more you can teach them that it's not your first effort, it's not just playing one-on-one, -on -one. it's not just plugging that nail. There's also a guy behind that nail, but it's also the fact that you plug the nail and you still got to try to recover to guard your man one-on-one. -on -one. So it's a multiple effort game and you're ready to be connected on a string and everyone's tied together and you're talking. So yeah, to kind of summarize, I, I just think it, it is, Talk is huge. I think defining your help, because if you think about it, every element of defense, you talked about defending one-on-one. -on -one. Well, if that breaks down, your help's in play. You talked about defending pick and roll. If that break down, it breaks down, your help's in play. You talked about uh, defending screening act or what other, other actions we talked about screening. If that breaks down, your help's in play. So the more you just work on your help and in everything you do daily, I think your team will build trust and they'll, they'll have a real feeling of what they can do. And you as a coach, the more you teach it, the more you drill it, the more you can hold them accountable to it. So I'm assuming an NBA practice when you're working on these things is very loud. Like you walk in the gym, it's guys are really active on offense talking. I mean, you walk in a lot of, I've always thought it's hard to get high school kids to talk for a variety of reasons. And maybe I'm just not good at, that aspect of it been to some college practices a little louder. So I'm a, I've never been to a pro practice or workout that it is loud. And it is like very, very specific talk. Like everyone knows what to say, when to say it, how to say it, because you're in an arena that's packed out, you know, 20,000 fans going all that. Like you've got to be very um, specific with your terminology now. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about transition. We missed that point earlier. How do you guys uh, do your, your transition, or does it depend on the team you're playing? Yeah, no, so that's that's actually a great question because there's, there's a little bit of a shift, and I think we'll probably be adopting some of that shift. And what it is is the traditional transition for us is obviously on the raise of the shot, we're getting back. And from there, it's a full-out sprint. You're not – you're not like jogging. You're not buddy running. You're getting back. And the, the first priority is the rim. You're, you're getting a man back to protect the rim. From there, you're stopping the ball. And most likely, you're doing both these things by being in the paint. From there, you know, you have a tandem when two men are back. You have a triangle when three are back. And then uh, basically, your, your last perimeter down or whoever it is is going weak of the ball. And then most likely, your big's trailing, and he's going to kick whoever that is at the rim mm -hmm. out if he can but transition, there's no rules. Nobody has a yes. man. So there's a good chance that that big also, especially in the NBA game, is simply guarding a perimeter with depending on, you know, the personnel of the team. If you're guarding the Warriors, your five might be matched up against Klay Thompson. You're, you know, your five, your five might not be kicking that small out. Mm -hmm. So it depends. But I think, you know, the biggest shift that you're seeing now is from a philosophy standpoint, do you believe in crashing the glass on offense? And the notion is if you have 
the right guys that can do it. And you put some rules in, whether it's you're only crashing from the corner or maybe you're going as far as specific guys who are going to crash. So you're naming guys that have the right to. Uh, if the, the thought is if they're decent at it, you're just going to limit possessions that teams have the opportunity to run because you're getting your hands on offensive rebounds. And you're seeing a lot of that, and there's a good correlation with teams that are crashing that are effective crashing. Because if you're not effective, it's, it's almost useless because you're just leaving yourself vulnerable for more transition opportunities defensively. But uh, if you are good at it, you're limiting the amount of opportunities the other team has to run. And uh, the last thing, too, I'd say is that obviously offense and defense is, is super tied together and they kind of build on one another. And I think that that overlooked sometimes is your floor balance and how your spacing is on offense. Because if every set you run – you have poor spacing and guys are basically all in the paint, or maybe you have everybody on the baseline, you're going to put yourself in a poor situation to get back. Or if a guy, if, if your point guard is a king at driving and you're also crashing your other guy top of the slot every time, you know, that's bad floor balance because you need to be able to read kind of who's going in and whatnot. And the priority still at the other end is take away the rim first. So you got to have people back and you got to communicate. Right. That's, that, that's a great point. You know, a lot of coaches I've known kind of at the high school level, it's kind of common for the point guard to get back. Well, I've got two point guards who get downhill all night long. Right. So like, there's no way I want yeah. them to, I'm putting a lot of pressure on them to get to the rim. So I've made it, it just made it easier for my guys um, is our three um, always gets back. Normally, they're not the guy getting downhill, maybe a shooter, or sometimes my least skilled offensive player is that three, but they, they do a lot of other things well. And it just made it easier for us. I realize I'm putting pressure on other guys, like, hey, I'm getting to the rim, but you also want me back 90 feet. So as you're implementing this and teaching this, let's say it's you know preseason workouts, guys are coming in. Um, how do you guys go about teaching this? Is it breakdown drills, whole part, whole is a lot of showing a lot of film of what you want first and then getting on the court. How do, how do the pros and, and the Sixers staff um, communicate what they want defensively with the team? Yeah, no. So you, you, the key, the number one thing is defining kind of what your defensive philosophies and your goals are, because everything leads back to that. So for us, obviously it's, it's nothing at the rim. It's taking away the paint. And from there, it's reacting out and taking away threes. In the NBA, it's the corner three first because it's a closer three than anywhere on the court, and then above the break threes. And basically, we want to force contested twos outside the paint. So kind of once you define that, obviously, it's super easy to define, much harder to actually yeah. do and coach. But once you've defined that, everybody's on the same page. So you kind of know exactly what you're looking for, what you're going to hold guys accountable for, and you, you need to – get your team to buy into that. So we always talk about that just so everyone's on the same page. And if there's a heck of a defensive possession, you run a guy off a three and they drill a two, two feet inside the three, as long as that guy was given effort, you know, there's just some things you got to live with. So defining your kind of philosophy. And from there though, you're definitely doing whole part whole. Um, the whole at first is always like an install. So it's like a walkthrough setting of, Hey, Here's our pick and roll defense. Hey, here's our shell defense. And it's a breakdown, teaching, getting the first group to do it, getting the second group to do it. So that's kind of the whole phase of it. The part phase of it can be on levels of breakdown drills, your shell drill, your multiple pick and roll drill. But then even smaller than that at times is kind of maybe on one end, you have almost close to station work where you're doing – DHO defense, you're doing wide pin down defense, you're breaking it down. We, we do a ton of in our shoot arounds before we start our defensive walkthrough, we're doing a breakdown drill and then we're doing another breakdown drill. And then we flow into what's walkthrough, which is going through the opponent's sets and how we're going to guard it specific to kind of our rules combined with the game plan that's involved in that game. But it's definitely whole part whole. And then the thing we're trying to add is doing more in the NBA, there's actually not a ton of practice. And so you you end up having these days where do the guys are in and, and they're shooting and whatnot. So it's implementing some individual player development that's also defensive-based. So I'd say that'd be kind of the overall big snapshot of how we do it. Oh, and then the last part you mentioned is 
film is huge. So film is huge on two levels. We do a ton of de- team defensive film. So pretty much after every game, the team sits down, Doc shows offense, and then we show a defensive edit that kind of summarizes the key themes that were good, the key themes that need to be improved on. And then from there, you have more on a player development level, individual defensive clips being shown to guys. Are there specific stats defensively that you're tracking in the game that you bring good and bad? Whether it's I'm tracking straight line drives, that's player X gave up, or I'm also tracking deflections or whatnot. Um, what what do you pay attention to during the course of the game? No, definitely. Uh, I think I think just the the most basic stuffs. You know, points in the paint. Where's that at? Um, three point shooting. Where's that at? Because obviously those are two. Are you protecting the rim? Are you protecting the three? But then charting wise, we're doing deflections. We're a big deflection team. Um, we're also doing, um, we're doing stops in a row. So three stops is considered a kill. So how many kills can you get? And then also it's huge just for a boost of, it's amazing when you go on a run and you see you have seven of the last defensive possessions have been a stop. I mean, it just reinforces usually what you're feeling live or the opposite, unfortunately, that, you know, nine out of the last 10 possessions they've scored or gotten to the free throw line you know, you can kind of challenge the guys. Let's get a few, let's string a few stops together. Those would be the big things for charting. We don't overkill uh, the charting. And then with the NBA, it's pretty insane now. The stats that are, are available to us after a game, the post-game breakdowns, just from an analytical standpoint, it's, it's pretty wild. Some of the stuff I, I need to do a better job diving into. Yeah, yeah what are some, just curious, like what are some of the things that you guys might get back when the game's over on your shot, on your defensive chart that it would never even cross my mind i may never heard of it right what how detailed does it get yeah i mean there's there's you know expected score so based on the shots that they got what they were supposed to score and sometimes sometimes it's that you know we've lost the game but the shots based on the percentages they shoot they weren't supposed to make them so we should have won the game so as defensive guys, we're always like, whatever, leave us alone. We lost the dang game, you know. But uh, at the same time, uh, it, it's interesting, you know. It's interesting. Um, trying to think of another one that would stand out that's a little different. Because um, I know at, nah, at the high school level, you know, we have the four analytic things. Everyone tracks on huddle and things like that and kind of what we pay attention to. Um, do you? Is there a certain amount of turnovers you – do you want to force? Do you, do you even talk about that or not? Cause you don't want guys taking risk. Yeah, I, we don't, we don't really focus on that. I'd say, uh, I'd say the thought with a lot of turnovers and especially with some of the guys that we have would be the gambles, you know? And so we, we don't really do it. Obviously I, I always think too, sometimes that's a miss, like your steals steals is a huge thing into your defensive rankings. And sometimes teams that have a lot of steals, like are loose with their systems. And so if you go watch them and study those teams, their defensive ranking is high, but they have a couple freaks that are just getting a ton of steals. And that's part of it. Whereas if your system's tight, you, you potentially could be more conservative and not getting as many steals. So yeah, we, we definitely love force and turnovers. Uh, you know, we, we have saying, if you're going to go for it, you better mm-hmm. get it though. If you're going to try to gamble for a steal, you know, anything you want to add about, Defensive player development, how you guys do it individually. Um, you talked about film, whole part, whole breakdowns on the side. I think we we covered that that pretty well. Yeah, no, I think I think just more of an emphasis maybe to do it at the beginning of your workout, and sometimes depending on the rest that's needed, that might just be simply a technique thing. We talked about pick and roll and lowering your shoulder. Maybe you're having a guy five times just hear the call jump to the ball, lower that inside shoulder, just working technique. So I think sometimes getting it in at the beginning, because let's be honest, guys, guys want to come in to get shots. up. So if you can just get it out of the way early, then you've, you've touched that. Or if you do do it at the end, just being organized with it, I think that's big. Uh, But basically we've just tried to, we've tried this summer to take more of an emphasis on let's look at every area of defense and, let's break it down on the individual level and let's, let's create drills that can rep get repetition. So if it is that high wide pin down, we, we gap those. So maybe that's gapping a high wide pin down, man throws it. Now you're in a closeout drill because you're in help and you're closing out. So just getting creative with it. 
and finding ways you can kind of couple actions together so that you're kind of getting a few things in and then that's that. But just, I think it's the whole, the whole idea. I don't think you'll ever have a 45 minute individual defensive workout, but if you could stack five to 10 minutes, every workout yeah. that of a player development workout, you're going to build something. Well, I think you hit on something just earlier. You mentioned like this specific technique, just do it five, like five meaningful reps as opposed yeah. to let's just wear this out for eight minutes. Right. I think that's what a lot of us who coach, you know, lower levels will beat something, you know, into the ground, which instead of giving it like three meaningful minutes, as opposed to, because no if kids know, you know, you put 15, you put 10 minutes on the clock for closeouts for like 10 minutes for closeouts. Can't we be efficient and, you know, three or four. So an, another question kind of off, off the defensive uh, topic, if you don't mind, because a lot of us are always curious about this. Like what is, when you're in the middle of the season, you know, you're 40, 50 games deep. What is a, What's a day like in the day of a pro? Like, let's say you're on that you're on an off day, you're at home. Like, what does a typical day look like for staff and a, and players? Yeah, no, definitely. So, so we'll take the player first, and we'll take two types of players. You'll have a guy playing high minutes, and so that guy basically the thing with what you don't realize is it's amazing. And it's, it's even worse when you're coming back from a road trip. But even after a game, I mean, games start uh, – some start at 7, a lot of 7.30 and sometimes even 8, you know, and then you run into some weird timing at 9. But by the time the game's over and by the time everything's died down and guys at that, this level are pretty regimented in whether it's their ice buckets, whether it's their ice bags, a lot of guys now are lifting after the game. Some are doing cardio, like uh, prehab work, you know, to, to prevent potential injuries. Um, so by the time they get out of there, it's late, you know, and then a lot of people just like, I think as coaches, when we have big games or whatnot, we're stimulated. So it's hard to fall asleep. So you don't usually do anything before 10 o'clock. You have, you have some younger guys or some like vets that are very regimented in their routines and they'll get in before that. And that's just something you're always used to, but usually the guys playing heavy minutes are coming in. They're usually getting some sort of treatment done, maybe a lift, maybe some kind of preventative stuff going on. And then they could watch film that day. It depends on if, if they like to watch it and or if their coach wants to show them it. And when I see their coach, it's the guy that's kind of been assigned to just dealing with them from a development standpoint. Um, and then depending on their routine for the vets that are playing heavy minutes, maybe they will go around the key, get some shots up. Maybe they will go do a workout. But for those guys, it's very structured and, and very light and very regimented. Some guys, you know, Danny Green, he's been around the league forever. He, he, was, he would rarely shoot on a day. If he had played his normal minutes, he wasn't getting shots up that day after the game. And obviously, all this is different if we have an official film session or an official practice. But on a normal day, you're technically off. And that's what a vet is doing. And then some of the lower minute guys are coming in and doing the same thing, but maybe it's a guy playing 20 minutes a game. So his, he'll do exactly what I just said, except his workout will be a little more vigorous. And those are the type of guys you can mix in some defensive development with. Uh, and then lastly is the guys that are not playing. Those guys are coming in. They're basically mandated to come in at a certain time. They're getting a full lift in usually or whatever cardio they may need. They're on the court. They're doing a full workout. They're potentially playing with another player. And then what we do, what's called low minute games, where basically a group of them and some younger coaches or some, you know, in the NBA, you have a lot of retired players. So some of those guys that have just gone out of it love to play. So you're playing a low minute game. And the more you have, the more you can actually structure it, even run some plays. Sometimes that low minute game might just be three on three, you know, and, and it's it's five players and one coach and you're playing three on three with a couple concepts in the half court. Um, those would be pretty much, that's like a typical NBA off day. It, it's rare. Give these guys credit. They do love the game and they are really dedicated to their craft. And even though some of them that aren't playing are making very good money, they're, they're really determined to, you know, break the rotation and whatnot. So you've got a lot of consistency in, in high level work ethic on those days. What about for the, the staff, you yeah. know, um, Coach Rivers and the support staff assistants. I mean, are you guys early in the morning or, or you know, do you have a staff meetings? What is your day like? Because I know 
Yeah. No. So if it's an off day where, you know, we've got a game on a Wednesday and a Thursday's off and the players are doing what I just described and a Friday's a game, basically you got waves of people coming in. So you have the earliest first guys to get there. And I've been down that road is the video guys because you're in and you're breaking down the film, meaning, you know, a lot of stuff is done live now. So they do a great job of labeling stuff live, coding stuff live, but there's still stuff to be done. And most importantly, they have stuff to do for the teams that are coming up. Mm -hmm. And from there, it's just different. It's a little more coaching preference. I'm a big early morning guy. I've always been. So I'm in pretty early. I'm rewatching the game. I'm starting with our defense because that's my main focus and my role. So I'm breaking down the defense. Uh, then I'm going through our offense. And then on top of that, if I'm working with a specific player like I was this last year, I'm really zeroing in on his minutes and kind of creating a little edit if he did play of kind of the, the, the key takeaways that I'm going to show him. Uh, defensively, I'm also making an edit to give to our head defensive coordinator, Dan Burke, and kind of going from there. Different coaches are coming in at different waves. Doc will be in. He'll usually watch the game, give kind of his requests to the video guys. Um, other coaches are coming in specifically to work with a guy. You know, it depends on your head coach. Doc's good. He, he, he has structure for us, but at the same time, he's not going to, you know, he's not going to force us to be in there a certain amount mm -hmm. of hours. Um, but whatever you got to do to get whatever's required of you done is kind of what's expected. And then obviously in that period where the players are in, you're around. And if you work with a specific guy, you're on the court with them. And if you don't though, a lot of times for myself, I'm usually out there helping with somebody else's workout and laying a hand where I can, I can help. And, and, you know, that's kind of how that goes. And then in the afternoons, it cools down. We all try to stay somewhat fit through the season. I'd say we got a good group that works out and, and then you're going back and you're, you're preparing for the next game and defensively, what are the, what do we got to do? Technique strategy, all that stuff. Yeah. That's good. I always just like to hear kind of the day in the life of something that I've never experienced and will never experience. Um, well, Coach Adams, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. I really appreciate it. Um, look forward to following the Sixers uh, next next season. And, uh, again, thanks so much. A lot of good detail there. That I know the, co the coaches listening are really going to enjoy. No, thank you. I really appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun to talk about. I'll talk hoops anytime. Awesome. Maybe we do it again sometime. No, definitely. Thank yes, you. Yes, sir. Thank you.